This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm uh, Margaret Chowning, uh, a member of the History Department, but also more relevant for today's meeting, Chair of the Moses Lectureship Committee. We are pleased, along with the Graduate Division, to present Marianne Mason, this year's speaker in the Bernard Moses Memorial Lecture Series. As a condition of Professor Moses' bequest, we are obligated to tell you how the endowment supporting the lectures came to UC Berkeley. In 1937, University of California President Robert Gordon Sproul and the UC Board of Regents established the Bernard Moses Memorial Lectureship in the Social Sciences. The lectureship honors the memory of the late Bernard Moses, a professor of history and political science at the University of California from 1875 to 1911, and an emeritus professor from 1911 until his death in 1930. Professor Moses earned a worldwide reputation for his contributions to understanding the problems of the Latin American republics, uh, and he was a pioneer scholar of Latin American history. Professor Moses served as a member of the United States Philippine Commission from 1900 to 1904. Past lecturers have included Herma Hill Kay, Lloyd Ullman, Nicholas Riasanovsky, George Lakoff, Kenneth Stamp, Eugene Hamill, Ken Jowett, Carolyn Merchant, Jean Lave, and Emmanuel Saez. Now I'd like to say a few words about today's lecturer, Marianne Mason. Professor Mason is currently a professor of the Graduate School and faculty co-director of the Earl Warren Institute for Law and Social Policy at the UC Berkeley School of Law. Mason is an influential force in the areas of family law, policy, and child custody issues. Her lecture today, in part inspired by her forthcoming book, Do Babies Matter? Gender and Family in the Ivory Tower, which, according to Amazon, is coming out in May. Does that sound right? July. July. This uh, book will ask why female doctoral graduates do not follow the same career trajectories as men after receiving their degrees. Drawing on 12 years of research, Mason traces the effect of family formation on women from graduate school through retirement. This follows on her more recent work concerning the issues that professional women face in law, medicine, science, and academia. Marianne Mason received a Ph.D. in American History from the University of Rochester and a J.D. from the University of San Francisco. After teaching American History and practicing law, Mason joined the faculty of UC Berkeley in 1989 and served as a professor in the Graduate School of Social Welfare until 2007. Between the year 2000 and 2007, Mason served as the first woman dean of the graduate division at UC Berkeley. She was and is a strong advocate for graduate student diversity, equity for student parents, and career life balance for all faculty. Her research is a foundation for UC system-wide initiatives, including the UC Family Friendly Edge and the Nationwide Nine Presidents Summit on Gender Equity. 
Please join me in welcoming Professor Marianne Mason. Thank you, Margaret. I'm very honored to be at the Moses Lecture this year and to be able to speak to my family, my Berkeley family, my favorite people, and my actual biological family is here as well. Uh, where are you? You didn't sneak out already. <laughs> my daughter, even my, my husband, Paul. Um, I'm particularly glad to be here because, as Margaret mentioned, this actually represents 12 years of research, and um, you have been my experimental subjects for most of this time, as you will learn. So you might be able to see yourself in some of these pictures and charts and graphs because we have been studying you and the whole, the whole UC system. Um, this started, actually, when I first became the graduate dean at Berkeley in the year 2000. And I have to say, as an old 70s feminist, I was thrilled to see that a little more than 50% of the entering class were women. Unbelievably exciting to me. Thought we'd never see this in my lifetime. The graduate students were less impressed because that's what they grew up with and didn't realize how different things had been. Uh, so as you can see from this, uh, in terms of the rise of women PhDs in 1973, it's 20%, and now it's actually a little more than 50%. I got a PhD in um, 1973, actually, and it was only 12% of my class were women, so that doesn't surprise me. I got a law degree after that, and only 10% of my class were women. Now, law school is well over 50%, and certainly graduate degrees in history, as um, you know, are probably over 60% as well. So things have changed greatly. Uh, amazing within my lifetime to see such change. And it's not just overall. It's also in the sciences, which everyone said was going to be stuck in wherever forever. But in fact, since 1973, you've seen huge growth in lots of fields. In psychology, it's 71% now. In, even in the field of engineering, of all places, it's over 22%. Coming from zero, that's a really good, pretty good jump. Uh, and similarly, you have geoscience and math and science are, are really going up very fast. Altogether, about a little less than 30% of all PhDs in the sciences are now granted to women. So this is enormously impressive progress. Um, however, I looked around me, and uh, there are some issues here. So this is a test, and the winner either gets um, Starbucks or bourbon, depending on your predilection. So uh, what do you think this diagram resembles? I mean, the figure on the right has got kind of a masculine hulk to him, and the woman on the right's got those little bulgy hips. It's hard to know. Um, so what do you think it is? Start at the top. It's the easiest. The two heads there. There's the 987 and the 325. And this is Berkeley. And Paul, you probably know the answer. <laughs> Anyone else want to guess what this might be? The heads. No, actually, tenure-track professors. We're, we're kind of a shrinking faculty. 987 to 325 of tenure-track. That includes assistant as well as associate and full. And the most important story here, though, as it is in general in higher education, are the necks. You see that women have tiny heads and thickish necks compared with the little skinny necks that the men have. What do you think the neck is? Yes adjuncts, part-times, lecturers on this, on this campus. doesn't include graduate students, just the adjuncts, part-time, and lecturers. Now, the next are the fastest-growing part of higher education. 
um, it's, it's really a stunning figure in the other direction, not a good direction. About 20 years ago, something like 58% of all undergraduates were taught by tenure-track professors, and now that's down to 37%, and going down further. The model has been to shrink the professoriate and raise the basically the fungible workplace, the the workplace that is uh, cheap and can, and can move on. Now, this is only Berkeley, because we're not really doing this with the other slides, but what do you think the 3,000 and 4,000 are? Pardon me? There are a lot of them. Could have been graduate students, you're right, but it's not. It's actually the staff. And the staff have, because there are a lot of technical people um, and people who work in the labs, the men have higher paid jobs, so those are the broad shoulders, and women not so much. And then at the, at the bottom, the female bulge there, there are lots of just... Um, at school like this, residence workers and restaurant workers, et cetera, who are women. So this is the face of Berkeley, but it actually is the face of most American corporations and certainly all other major universities. I've had people look at this diagram and do their own, and it's, it's very similar. It's what's happened since the feminist revolution. Huge numbers of women in the workplace, but taking the bottom half, and with some representation at the top, but not too much, much more in the middle management, the neck positions in the corporate world, and in our, in our world, it's the, uh, basically the gypsy scholars. Um, this is a little di distressing. I knew this, of course. It was a great surprise to me, and I wanted to look at it more carefully for my students to see what was going to happen, and more importantly, for the university to see it and to take some steps. So how, what happens to men and women after they get their PhDs? How does having babies affect tenure? Um, we had a wonderful data set to use. Every, how many PhDs are in this audience? There you go. I knew it. I knew it. I knew there'd be a lot of you. So every one of you, if you got a PhD before or after 1973, filled it out once, the survey of earned doctorate. We don't let you graduate from the graduate division unless you fill out that survey. So that's the base, and 10% of all PhDs are followed through um, every two years until they are 76, dead, or have left the country. It is very hard to escape NSF. Just don't even try. Uh, so that is 160,000 participants, and arguably it is the best employment longitudinal database that we have in America. You can ask questions from this database that you're not going to find even, for instance, for doctors or lawyers. They don't have this kind of database. So we're really fortunate because you can really pinpoint when and how family formation makes a difference. Uh, who gets tenure? Do you see the old familiar heads and necks again? So what is it? Well, we can see the guy on the right here, Guy. You know, we're used to thinking he was Guy now in blue. 78% uh, of those who go into academia um, of the men get tenure. Uh, and 22% go into the second tier, full-time, part-time faculty, non-tenure faculty. Those are the fathers. The fathers actually, men, married men, do better than anyone else in the university in terms of promoting up the ladder. They do better than single men. They do better than single women. They do better, a lot better than, than married women with children. The women with late or no babies um, do pretty well. They're kind of in between, 71%, and they have a somewhat bigger neck. Uh, late or no babies, by our definition, late is really about over age 40 because it's any time post-PhD, five years post-PhD. The average PhD is now given at age 34, so you're really flirting around age 40. 
uh, when you're talking about a late baby. So anything over 40 would be a late baby. There aren't too many of those. Um, there's no difference between a late baby over 40 or an early baby, but early babies make a huge difference. And this is any time, again, before about the age of 40. And you can see that the women who have the big necks are disproportionately uh, women, married women with children. Now, the interesting part is, here's the science world. Same pattern. As you find out, things are tougher for women in science in some ways, but the patterns are remarkably similar to what happens in the humanities and social sciences. Uh, in this case, you see smaller numbers because there are fewer scientists to begin with, so the heads and necks and whatever are disproportionately, it's 3,000 and 3,000. And then the men have the same big heads and same-looking neck. In this case, however... The women with later no babies in science do not do that well. They actually have a lot of trouble getting tenure, even if they don't have babies. And those who have babies do pretty miserably, 53% to 77%. So this is the way academia has been playing out. Um, and it hasn't changed much, these, these, these kinds of images, probably for the last 10 years or so. It's been, it's been fairly stable. Now, look at it in a different way. It shows a kind of a time, a timeline here of falling out of the pipeline. And this is, again, everybody. It's not just the scientist. And you see the biggest, the biggest leak in the pipeline, and this is true in science as well, is before taking that first assistant professor job, women are likely to drop out, as you'll see in a moment, as postdocs or change their minds as graduate students. They have already decided, hell no, I won't go, and don't take that. It's the pool problem, as we call it, because when you're trying to hire for a new position, you find you don't have as many women applying for it proportional to the numbers. So this is a familiar one. And then women are 27% less likely to become associate professors. In other words, they just don't get tenure. And women lag in on those those um, slow, slow years of being an associate professor forever, so 20% less likely after 16 years of being an associate professor to be a full professor. So you see it all the way up. But for women in general, it's really the younger years, the postdocs and the graduate students, where you see the biggest change. They just don't enter the pipeline at all. Here you have women in science. Now, the interesting part about women in science is that they single women actually take that first job, that first tenure-track job, just about in the same proportion as married fathers do. So they're really on an even keel up to that point. And then single women take a big tumble and don't get tenure. But the interesting part about it, it's not just the mother effect. There are more complicated things going on in science. Uh, I think the, I have been studying science, the women scientists now for the last two or three years, and the complexity of the implicit bias and the stereotyping and the, and the, um, the gender, gender discrimination are, are really quite serious in the sciences. They are across the board, but not quite as much as in the science. And in the sciences, mother, married mothers are 35% less likely than married fathers to take a tenure track, and married mothers drop out 27% less than married fathers with young children to become tenure. So scientists take a bigger hit, no question, with motherhood. Uh, but it's not just scientists who take the hit. The patterns are there. It's just tougher in science. And I think the women, are there women scientists in this room? Is that your perception? Yes. 
It is. And I think women scientists get much more discouraged in early age, so they're more likely to drop out, which is what we're really trying to aim at. Um, these are postdocs. Now, in the UC system, we have just about as many postdocs as we have doctoral students in all the system itself, uh, about 8,000 of them, I think. And the most dramatic thing, we actually have tons of data on our UC postdocs because in addition to the survey of doctor recipients, we did several original studies. This is where you're probably part of it. How many are faculty members here? There we go. In 2003, there was a UC family survey, which became our backbone and has been brought up to date really by the climate survey. And then in 2005, we did all the doctoral students. How many doctoral students are in the office? In the office. <laughs> okay, you might have done this, or you might not have been here in 2005. And then in 2007, we did the postdocs. We have this whole series. Again, the biggest data set for these classes of workers uh, of any in the United States. No one has that kind of data for graduate students, postdocs, or faculty. Uh, that gives you a kind of a, a heft in power. But it's a distinct, distinct drop-off there. 41% who have a new child since they became a postdoc say they've changed their opinion and they're no longer going to become a research scientist at an academic institution. 41% versus um, fathers who become children. Who become children. <laughs> I didn't say that. Who, uh, who have children, right, right. Um, and those who had children previous to a postdoc, again, you see a big slide. They just find the postdoc years just too tough. Other kinds of criteria when we measured, the women with children are far less likely to go to conferences, which is the lifeblood of networking and getting a job. They're far less likely to uh, have a good relationship with their mentor, which is not very helpful either because your mentor is the person who, who most helps you through, through life. So postdocs have a serious disadvantage and show it by just dropping out of the, of the, um, out, out of the pipeline. And for, women, for scientists, I think that's really critical because we spend about half a million dollars at least to educate, the federal government does, to educate scientists through their PhD and their postdoc, and then they leave just because we don't do much to help them stay. It's, a, it's a really a, a, not a very good use of funds. Um, and this is our graduate students. Now, you all, I'm sure, know the graduate students quite well. Um, they changed their career goal as well. We did a snapshot, but we asked them, have you changed your career goal since you entered? And at the beginning of entering their postdoc, not the postdoc, their, their graduate program, women, 46%, wanted to be a professor in a research institution. But if they had a baby, and these are all women in the sciences, that number absolutely plummeted to 11%, basically getting rid of all the mothers who had babies as doctoral students. For fathers, beginning number was 58%, and that went down to 45%. So it had an effect, but not, not the drastic effect that childbirth has. So childbirth is really the major reason, I think, why, in certainly the sciences, the women do not look as strong as men going through the pipeline. They start out Pretty well, 30%, and then they go down pretty rapidly. Okay. Um, now here, are, these are our own sweet graduate students, and you've probably heard remarks like this, or maybe you haven't. The women all uniformly, uh, in just the off the comments, the free, freehand comments, I want to be able to have a family, have children, enjoy being a mother and wife, which are close to impossible when one chooses academia. The clock is ticking, and it will not stop for anything or anyone. Um, 
And then here we see the, the guy fed up with the narrow-mindedness of supposedly intelligent people who are largely workaholic and expect others to be so as well. He's sick of it too. So both men and women change their mind, but women more than men, and almost always for family reasons, a significant difference in that regard. And it's true that both men and women, the majority, believe that their university, which is one of our UCs, is not at all family-friendly, so we don't have a, a good uh, example. How many of you have had women graduate students say, I don't want to live your life? <laughs> yes, we've had that, exactly. It doesn't do well as an, as an example. So here's a repeat of this first part of the study. Again, this is over many, many studies and over several years, but just compiling it together. Married mothers are 35% less likely to enter tenure-track jobs than married fathers. Married mothers are 27% less likely to achieve tenure than married fathers. And mothers often make their decisions early. Twice as many men, women than men are likely to change their career goal away from being a research professor when they have um, babies as postdocs. High percentage of mothers slide into the second tier, the NEC, the part-time adjunct and lecture corps, the gypsy scholars of the university world. You know, I was a gypsy scholar for a while. Anyone else been a gypsy scholar in this class? There you go. You go. It is the least well-paid, least respected, high-educated discipline in this, in this country in terms of a job. It's, it really is just at the bottom of the bill. No respect, no money, no continuity, et cetera. And yet you find so many women and men, but largely women, doing it because it's really the only way they can continue on in the university or think it is. And then, uh, after several years, we'd gotten this pretty well organized and figured out when women were dropping out, et cetera. Uh, it occurred to me, and several others actually, uh, that there was another important question to, to address, that equity was not just uh, looking at the numbers of women compared with men who get tenure, it was also looking at the family formation of those professors. What did women have to give up if they wanted to go all the way? What, did the, what was the effect of career on family formation? Taking the question on its head. And here you see it even more drastically than you see in terms of the numbers. Uh, these are, across all fields, tenured faculty. And the discrepancy between men and women is huge. Married women with children, 44%. Uh, married with children, 70% for men. Women are twice as likely to be single. Um, the only group that is more similar are married without children. But the marriage penalty, not the marriage penalty, the uh, tenure penalty for, for uh, fertility is, is very high. And here you see it in the sciences. This is a better drawn diagram, and you get the scale of it. Because as you can see, there, women are a little teeny ball up there, a little teeny satellite around a huge moon, because the men are much larger in science. When you see it this way, you see both the numbers and the fact that there's a discrepancy, a double, double gender equity issue, a discrepancy in, uh, in having children. So here in sciences, it's 73% to 53%. Um, interestingly enough, women scientists are more likely to be married than women in the humanities and social sciences. Um, anyone have a guess of why that might be? The numbers are good. The proportion of numbers are good. <laughs> You're outnumbered by men all the time, so they, the odds are good. But as they say, the goods might be odd, as they say in Alaska. 
but nonetheless. So they have a little bit better advantage in terms of being married mothers, actually, than, than fathers do. And so many of them already dropped out that it's, uh, you're not seeing, of course, the whole, the whole thing. Single mothers, 8%, uh, and married without children, 15%. Basically, uh, getting divorced is also an area with a lot of discrepancy. As you can see, latter rank women are the most likely to be divorced, and the least likely to be divorced are the second-tier women um, because they've chosen that life, because they can't afford to be divorced. I don't know, but it clearly is a different, a different pattern for um, second-tier women. And th- this is really quite interesting. It's the, um, the census data, and it compares women faculty with women lawyers to women doctors. And women faculty are really much less likely to have children, as you can see. Doctors, however, women in medicine, do almost as well as all college-educated women. And that seems to be contradictory, because we know how hard it is and what the time dimensions are for women in medicine. Uh, But as one of my friends said, who was a resident at the time, she said, Marianne, we just have to put in the hours. We don't have to get tenure. So by the time they're in their residency, they don't have the pressure of publication, which is a very different kind of thing for, for women. And they also have something to look forward to. I think medicine is really unrolling itself as being a far more flexible career track for women. They have a lot of HMOs or places like Kaiser where people can work 50%, 60%, and still have high status, high salary, etc. It's also true that women are more likely to be family doctors or things that are not high, high prestige, like surgeons, etc. So there's a little bit of a second-tier effect, but nonetheless, and they actually earn 50% less than men because they work fewer hours, but still they can maintain their career and not be washed out. Only 5% of women doctors actually leave practicing medicine, uh, which is quite astounding. And they have more children. They have more children in part because they're also richer. This is the problem with um, what's the name of the woman in, in uh, who just who just the woman in Silicon Valley who took the job while pregnant. What's her name? It says right. I mean, she has a baby, and she says there's no problem here. But then she also has a staff of God knows how many. So this is and Cheryl Sandberg as well. So it's very easy for women who are in that position to say, of course you can do. Just lean in. Just lean in. Just take it. Just, just be tough about it. Uh, and I think most academic women do not have that luxury, unless you're married to someone in Silicon Valley, which most of us aren't. <laughs> so again, the years from um, 20 to 30 in all professions are really the make or break years. You have to make it in your profession, whether you're a lawyer or a doctor, but even more so as an academic, because you don't usually get a second chance. If you don't get tenure, uh, you're likely not to stay in the academic market. And it's a very intense and clear five, six, seven years. So although it's, it's true in all professions, it's even more intense for, for women in the academic profession. I call it the make or break decade. And now you can see in terms of childbirth here, the little long line there is the higher date. And at that age, most people are around 35 these days, 35, 36. And then you see the men and women... These are the, the years in which they have children. This is the percentage of children they have. Now, men have children, babies, early and often, and through their assistant professor years, right to the right of the higher date, they have a lot of children. Uh, women come more slowly, and only one year do they make a big burst, and that's four to six years 
that's the tenure year. They've got their case in, and now it's time to have the baby. And then after that, it goes down fairly quickly. So the tenure year has been the most popular year. The problem with that is the tenure year is, comes later and later than it did in the past. So it's often over 40, and it's waiting quite a long time. So you see that it goes down very quickly. Now, surprisingly, how can this be? 20 or more years past being hired, you have a little boomlet here on the right at the end of the curve. What could that possibly be? It's all men, too. <laughs> the second marriage, yes. A familiar, a familiar story. Although I have to tell you something. I'm not going to talk about retirement, but the one factoid of retirement, which is kind of interesting, there isn't much difference between men and women in terms of the age at which they retire, with the exception of those who still have children in the household don't retire, can't ever retire. <laughs> and that is largely going to be men. So there is a, that's the only differential you really see at the, at the, end, of, uh, at the end of the career. Um, so here, here again, just uh, summing it up, only one in three women without children who takes a fast-track university job ever become mothers. That's if you enter a tenure-track job without children, you're not likely to have children also because of the age and other things. Women are far less likely to be married with children than are men, 53% to 73%. Women who achieve tenure are more and twice as likely than men who achieve tenure to be single 12 years out from PhD. Now, I'm, I'm really sorry there's students in this audience because this, this is when the hankies come out. It just sounds so hopeless. But you will see there is good news following this. It's not, not as bad as it seems. Um, and if married, women are significantly more likely than men to experience divorce or separation. Ah, now it's getting sadder. Women faculty were more than twice as likely as men faculty to indicate they wish they could have had more children. That was actually from our UC faculty survey. Uh, now, can you read this? I can't believe I forgot to have children. Now, most of you probably don't remember the 80s, but those of you who do, this was a shirt that was very popular, and it was a backlash against the feminist movement. You know, you've given it up. You've given up motherhood. And I mean, the thing that's sad about it is there's still some truth to it, more than some truth to it, that it hasn't quite worked out the way that we had hoped it would in terms of having children. Having it all, as they say, is, is very difficult. And uh, we are making progress, though, as you will see. I'm just recapitulating about the family status of tenure faculty all fields. Um, that is a, it's a double equity problem because it's both the number of women who are full professors and all, also the family configuration of those who are. So it's double trouble, as I think of it. And here again are the women scientists with their little orbs going around. Um, so until we actually reach equity in both areas, we can't say that we have reached any kind of equity in terms of the university world. Now, what are your next steps? Um, the good news is we actually, in the last 10 years, have been very active ones for Berkeley, for the UC system, and for pretty much all universities. There's been a lot of positive action, and things are happening every day, and largely good things to make the workplace more flexible, to change the culture, and to try to keep our women students in the pipeline and not let babies derail them. Uh, this is compiling altogether all the many kinds of workplace strategies, and I'm happy to say that Berkeley now has pretty much all of them. Um, we have, in terms of leaves, parental leave for mothers and fathers. As you probably know, there's an active service modified duty of one semester for mothers, uh, two semesters for mother, and one for dads if they are significant or generally 
fair, fair about the distribution of childcare. They have to be doing it at least 50% uh, of the time. And as you may have noticed in your department, the men are taking this. This is not something that is uh, unappreciated or unknown. Um, we have centralized funding for maternity or parental leaves. That was important as well because some departments resent it very much if they have to pay money to hire lecturers. So that was made part of the part of the original deal. And these are all part of a number of initiatives that started in 2004. After we'd published our initial studies, uh, it became a very important political campaign to take this to Atkinson and then to take it to the chancellors and then to take it to the deans, et cetera, to sell the fact that we wanted to have centralized, flexible, family-friendly policies. And we put in place a great number of them between 2004 and 2005. Um, there was a real fight over some of these. The one that was most contentious was the part-time tenure track. And now, for family reasons, you can have a part-time ten pre-tenure or post-tenure track of up to five years. According to Regents' rules, you have, to be, you have to have tenure by the time you've been in here 10 years. So that's sort of the upper limit for, for pre-tenure. But for post-tenure, it's usually five years. Sometimes it can be longer. People have family needs all during their life. They have them at with their spouse, with themselves, with their families, et cetera. So it's a lifelong issue. And that's the way we actually managed to get that through because uh, the faculty were convinced that they also might have needs for themselves or their spouse, et cetera. Not so much for the baby. Certainly the men were not thinking so much that, but they knew that that would happen. And we were very definite about getting some sort of parental leave or recognition for fathers because when we did the 2003 survey of faculty, we found that there had been some good policies on the books way from the 1980s, but 52% of the mothers who were eligible didn't know they existed, and something like 70% of the dads didn't know they existed. So mothers rarely took them, and if they didn't, they said it was partly because those who did know about them, they were afraid that they would be considered not um, a strong player, that men would, that it would marginalize them. And men didn't take them at all. It was just kind of an unknown thing. So in order to change it, to, to allow women to do it, we want men to get in there. So much of this has been focused on men as well. Stop the clock for promotions. That's pretty much the default. Now, you have to ask to keep it going. So most people do take stop the clock. Not, not all, but most do. And the same thing for fathers. Uh, and the, the part-time track, as I said, is for mothers and fathers. When we first looked into this, because there wasn't it wasn't clear that there was a part-time way of doing this, we found that on the 10 UC campuses, there were a very large number of part-time professors. But were they mothers? No. They were largely uh, engineers or chemists who were starting their own company, and they wanted to keep their door, foot in the door and keep their half-time job, but also start their company. Very, very prominent um, pattern in many of the departments. So we thought if they can do it, everybody else can do it. So we did the part-time pre-tenure track. And the battle came down to, well, how do you actually judge them? And finally, the academic senate, the senate, uh, system-wide academic senate, decided it in its wisdom that as long as they had the same kind of publications they would if they came through in a normal time, then they were up for tenure. It wasn't going to cut down the number. The numbers were the same. They just could do it in twice the time if they wanted to. Um, child care. We have worked very hard on child care. Everyone does. We have the wonderful new child care center at Haste, uh, and we have gotten dependent care travel grants uh, for both for faculty and for graduate students as well. And in terms of graduate students, child care is a real problem, um, particularly infant care. 
We do give at this university a five to seven thousand dollar student bonus for the parents, student parents, to be able to use as they like, which helps alleviate it. Um, and they, a number of graduate students have their babies in the infant care center, and. Emergency childcare. This is new, but it is enorm- most of these things are not that expensive, actually. In fact, when um, we were looking at maternity leave for graduate students, um, I took it to Bob Bergenau, and I said, you know, it, we, we can do this. It's, it's not going to be that much money. He said, well, how much money is it? And I'm no mathematician, I promise you, but on the back of the envelope, I'd figured out the number of graduate students who were likely to have babies that year, we have a lot of graduate students, but still the number is relatively small. And the little bit of money it would cost, since it's only for six weeks, and they have, they're paid almost nothing anyway, so it was going to be fairly small. So altogether, I think it came out the highest possibly could be 50, and the lowest was going to be 15 or something. They said, let's do it. Because <laughs> the money just is not that big. There's always this notion that somehow we can't afford these things, when in fact most of them are very affordable. All these things are fairly affordable. Emergency child care, the same way. It's quite affordable. And it gives peace of mind, I think, to all, all mothers on campus. Um, having the rules alone don't do you much good, as we discovered in 2003 when people weren't using the policies and there was no acceptance of any kind of flexibility for uh, mothers or fathers. So what policies alone do not work. You have to make room for fathers. Uh, all policies are entitlement, not, not request. In other words, you don't have to ask your department head if you want to have maternity leave or if you want to be a uh, part, part-time pre-tenure tech. That is an entitlement to you. It's like you have Christmas Day off and you have Thanksgiving Day off. Uh, it's not something that you have to fight about or, or beg for. And centrally funded, if possible, because then, again, the department chair will be much happier. Deans and chairs toolkits. Aha, we have it. Creating a family-friendly department, deans and chairs toolkit. And this was developed here at Berkeley for all 10 campuses. And it has, um, we've used it at recruitment time, and we've used it at uh, retreat time for the deans and chairs every year. So they actually know what the policies are, which is enormously important. They know what the problems are. There's a little research in back. And then they know what the penalties are, which I'm kind of a believer in as well. They know that the uh, provost at the University of Oregon had to pay $490,000 to a woman uh, when he said, he was the provost, he said, with two children, I don't think it's appropriate that you have tenure or something of that blatant. Rarely do you hear anything that blatant, but when you do, it's, it, there is a penalty for it. But the idea was it's not just the nice good thing to do, it's the legal thing to do, and there are consequences for not doing it. Uh, So this has been a very successful book. People have used it all over the country and just filled in, it's online, so they just fill in their own documents and their own policies, and it's it's been used all over the place. And um, well-advertised, publicly posted explanation of benefits for all level of scholars. I think we do that pretty well uh, for all these levels of scholars you find on the web. There are things that are not on the web, which I'm going to talk about because we don't have them yet. One is the dual career policy. Uh, many universities have pretty strong dual career policies that they actually advertise or at least say what the, what the parameters are in the rules. Dual career, which I'm sure many of you can appreciate, uh, is what keeps women often from getting jobs because they're following, they're the trailing spouse and they don't get the job. But it's also the thing that makes it hardest for provosts and deans to hire anyone because so many people come as dual careers. We don't do a great job with that at Berkeley. Other universities do because they are expanding or have more 
they have more land, I think, among other things. But that's a very important one as well. Um, and a high-level administrator and a legal counsel responsible for advertising and enforcing the policies. Well, we do have Angie Stacy and others in the office here, and they've been very good about promoting these policies. So I think we do very well with that. And Sheila O'Rourke is very tough on these policies as well. She was one of the people who pushed through the Office of the President our, our initial uh, competitive edge. Now, here is my favorite poster boy. Those in the history departments will recognize him. Uh, this is Mark Brilliant. He's a professor of history here. And I sat next to him at a dinner at Paula's house, actually. And he mentioned that he had been so happy with the policies that he put an acknowledgment in the front page of his new book. First, I knew about it. I don't think he knew who I was either. But when Max, I, Ezra Max Brilliant was born in 2008, I was able to enjoy him as much as I did during my first year, his first year without risking my career. Owes in good measure to the architects of the UC Family Friendly Edge program. Wow. They designed enlightened policies that children of all working parents should receive, as Ezra did, and for which I'm very grateful. I don't think these programs get that kind of evaluation very often. That was, I mean, just, it just, it's, it's a good example, though, that here's a father who really took advantage of it, really appreciated it, and will help change the culture because it is a dad doing it. Um, now I want to talk just a few minutes about the kind of best practices and needs that scientists, women scientists have, which are somewhat different, um, although ultimately there's a lot of la overlap. Women scientists are, for the most part, supported by the federal agencies. And the federal agencies, until very recently, have done almost nothing in, in, in terms of family-friendly initiatives. Only now is NSF and uh, NIH jumping up to the plate a bit, but as you see, many of them do nothing at all like uh, discount caregiving resumes and grant reviews or provide instructions to peer reviews on family accommodations or collect data on gender and family status. I've been working with NSF. In fact, I was on a, uh, a Skype with the con Congressional Committee this morning pushing the agencies to take some initiative in this because when they see that they're losing their, their students, they, they really should do something about it, to work with the universities to do more in terms of the thing that I think would make most difference. They do now offer supplements for the lab, for the PI, for anyone who gets pregnant so they can pay someone to replace them. The re-entry postdoc is what we really need because how many of you are scientists here? Yes. Do you have the notion that if you drop out for five years, you're just dead, brain dead, dread, dead to science, can't possibly be revived? Yeah. I don't think that's so true in law or history, but it certainly is the, the atmosphere in science. But if you had a year-long or a half-year-long postdoc, could you rev up your mind again? I think so. We just haven't done much of that. So as a routine part of not losing our women scientists, to let them stay out for a while, which many need to do with, in raising children, but to let them come back as well. We're losing a huge amount of brain power um, and social capital for, for our universities. But there are many of these very different issues. This was another, another survey that we took of all the 13 major agencies who support science uh, in universities and, and colleges includes NIH and NSF are but the biggest, DOA is pretty big, and down to USDA. Um, and since then, there has been some movement to try to get them together. NSF has tried to get the, the different agencies to talk to each other. NASA's trying to do this. Obama's trying to do it. He's been very tough on getting the universities to get together and do Title IX and save women from whatever. So he, 
we, it's a good time for this, and I'm, I'm hoping, this is really where I spend most of my time now is with these agencies, that they will be more proactive, because that's where the money is in science, and the rules make it almost impossible sometimes for women. I think the first RO is now given at age 40 or something like that, so it's, it's a very long, hard road, and if you have a child, it's very easy to get knocked off it. Um, and this is what the AAU universities, the 62 major research universities, do now for, for graduate students, postdocs, academic researchers, and faculty. Only 13% of these 62 give at least six weeks paid leave to women graduate students for maternity. I'm proud to say it's Berkeley and one other. <laughs> the other is Princeton, who also actually give parental leave to men. Uh, postdoctoral fellows, 23%. Um, that's not very good either. Postdoctoral fellows are in, have a problem because sometimes they're considered employees as they are in the UC system, which does give them guaranteed leave. They are staff. They have the same kind of rights. Most of the time, they're considered trainees and have no policies at all. So they are really floating there in a gray area. Academic researchers, 18%, and faculty get 58%. Have a long way to go on all these fronts, but particularly those... Uh, the two on the left are the most vulnerable populations. They're the ones who are most likely to lose. Uh, and very little has been done for them. Ah, now we've come to my favorite topic, which is new. Uh, in the course of studying women in science, which is, we've been doing more for the last three or four years, we've found many things, but one of the things that I kind of stumbled on is that Title IX actually has very strong prohibitions against pregnancy discrimination. It is very strong. How many of you knew that Title IX covers pregnancy discrimination? You do, Bill, because I told you. <laughs> you did know. No, I don't think so. Uh, even the Title IX coordinators often don't know that. It's, it's really quite shocking. But it's very clearly there in the regulations. It's starting to come through the case law. And it really could transform, certainly, the childbirth issue because they have very strong regulations here. Altogether, no discrimination in false pregnancy, termination, etc. In education program or activity, in employment, this means TAs, RAs, postdocs, et cetera, and medical coverage. You have to treat uh, childbirth as a temporary disability and pay for it with the insurance as you would a temporary uh, disability. And if the student's health coverage covers gynecological care, it also must cover pregnancy and childbirth. So there are really strict rules about what insurance will cover, uh, how you must not be left behind. And basically the rules say that anyone who has a child, which is usually a woman, um, must... <laughs> must um, be given the leave appropriate, determined by her doctor or whatever, and must be returned to the same place with no disadvantage. That includes an educational program. So if you have to drop out of, for six months and you're a postdoc or a graduate student, uh, you can't be kicked back or let go. You have to be reinstated and catch up or do whatever, but they have to accommodate you. If you have a job, they have to take you back after six months or six weeks or whatever and not lose status. These are very strong regulations, and I think they haven't been really found because they're probably uh, kind of difficult for universities to want to have to, to, to face. But now, interesting, I just looked at the website of our own wonderful Berkeley before I came because I had seen it before, but I'd kind of forgotten. I, I, I Googled in Title IX and... Um, 
discrimination and pregnancy discrimination, pages and pages about Title IX on our website and athletics and what the rules were, were, et cetera. And then we have a whole Title IX sexual harassment office. So sexual harassment has been the new frontier. But now the new, new frontier is definitely going to be pregnancy discrimination. And this is what Obama said. We're going to have Title IX compliance. It must be compliance. He went on and on about it. The NASA guidelines, which he recommended, actually include a big section on pregnancy discrimination. So it's just around the corner. This is my, as I say, this is my mission. A number of other people, once they learn about this, are, are interested in it too. Um, because it would provide a lot of coverage. As I said, often graduate students and postdocs are not considered employees. They're considered trainees, et cetera, in all the, all the aspects of their work life and in their education life and medical coverage. So you're going to be hearing more, more about this. Uh, you have to have a Title IX coordinator. We have one, but it doesn't cover pregnancy discrimination. Complaint procedure, dissemination, and self-evaluation. These are the keys to get going. So hopefully we'll be doing that soon at Berkeley. Uh, here is one biology graduate student. Once I got pregnant, I felt that my advisor no longer considered me a serious scientist. He gave me easy, not very important project, and spent much less time with me. Um, you hear this complaint a lot that particularly in the sciences, that pregnant women feel they, they are no longer taken seriously. Now, that's very hard to do, to prove. It has to be intentional discrimination, all kinds of criteria. But just knowing that there is a discrimination policy and that we don't, we don't accept discrimination, like we don't accept sexual harassment, which changed the workplace, I think would be an important step forward for, for women in science and everywhere. Um, this... No, actually, not this presentation. There's a video presentation. We have an NSF dissemination grant, an advanced dissemination grant, taking all of our research and best practices over the many years. And Joan Williams is my co-PI. She runs a center called Work Life Law. She's done a huge amount in creating new family responsibilities, discrimination, and gender bias things. So together, we have about eight of these, which are just coming online next week, actually. Do Babies Matter? They're 15 minutes long. They're a video with you know, wonderful, wonderful hmm, PowerPoints and pyrotechnics and also some extra uh, teaching materials to go along with them. So anybody can use them anywhere, and they're free. They're going to be on our website next week. Do Babies Matter? Four Patterns of Gender Bias. Uh, ensure they don't derail your career. How does your workplace me mess <laughs> measure up? Mess up is a good term. Double Jeopardy, Women of Color in Science. This is really kind of unique and new. She, uh, they interviewed 60 women of color in science, and she came up with some really quite interesting patterns. Some things are illegal, including pregnancy discrimination uh, and other issues, and it's cheaper to keep her. This is an analysis of uh, what family policies cost, what it costs us to lose someone, what it costs us to retain someone, what it costs us to recruit someone. And it was started at the University of Iowa, but right now our very own Claire Brown in the economics department is carrying on this study because we have some good data about things that have been in place and have worked and how much they cost. And it's, these are difficult correlations to make, and we haven't had these policies for too long. But we're already seeing good things, like since 2003, the percent of babies born to assistant professors has doubled women. No children in 2003, and now they're, excuse me, no 73% had no children in 2003, and now in 2009, 
Uh, only 36% have children. I think we kind of left that off there. 2009 was that. For men, similarly, no, 61% in 2003, and now it's only 41%. But the real, the real doubling has been with women assistant professors. Now I consider that a victory. It's clearly just our new policies that have made it all work. <laughs> I take full credit for it. <laughs> but we have... This is what I mean by changing the culture, where people feel it's okay to have children, and at least in the law school, because we have a lot of young faculty, um, you see the men and women often talking childcare talk in the hallway, which is, I, I think, pretty healthy for young parents to be able to do that freely and not feel, feel that they are restricted in any way. So I've, I'm, very, I'm very proud of that. But I just wanted to say, the last thing I wanted to say, uh, the book is coming out not actually in May, but in July, Do Babies Matter? Gender and Family in the Ivory Tower. And this is the life course book that I mentioned. Uh, some of the, a lot of the information you heard today is in it, of course, and then it takes us from graduate school years through finding your first job, through falling in and out of the tenure track uh, and the second tier, through getting tenure, through going through the associate, and then finally the retirement years. And then with a whole lot of suggestions along the way and at the end uh, for how to change things. And as I said, my heart has been in doing more for graduate students and postdocs because, again, you see the most serious dropout at that point. But the book really talks about all the different, different areas of, of your life. This is your life. So if you want to read about your life, this is it. Do babies matter? Uh, I have to say, it's pretty serious stuff. I mean, it, hopefully we wrote it in a nice, easy way, but... It's got a whole lot of graphs and appendix at the end. You, know? <laughs> you don't have to read those. Well, thank you very much, and I'm ready for, for any qu- questions. Thanks. Um, it seems like a lot of your data set comes from California, which is fantastic. You have a really large data set, and it looks like you found lots of really cool trends. And I'm wondering which of those trends, in your opinion, would have changed if you had a nationwide data set? Well, actually, most of this does come from the nationwide okay. da- data set, the survey of doctor recipients, which is everyone. And then some of the, the ones about postdocs and graduate students um, are more from our, our, our own surveys in California. But, of course, we have huge numbers, so these are important. And I think we're pretty representative of research universities, um, because otherwise, if you're not a research university, you're not having postdocs and, and uh, graduate students either. So I, I don't know that that's, um, I, I don't th- think that's so far off. Many other universities have used this data and these, these slides and such, and they seem to feel that it, it, it works pretty well for their university as well. So but that's a good question. I think it's, I think it's okay, though, from what we know. <laughs> and the survey of Dr. Recipient, which is most of this, uh, is clearly everyone, not just not that you see. Yes, sir. Um, thank you for that. And as, um, as a young father and a gypsy scholar at the moment, <laughs> especially appreciate it. Um, especially, um, I certainly am very familiar with when I have gone off to look with, after my little daughter and pick her up and things, there's definitely a sense that I get from other staff of, they wouldn't say it, but they would, they, there tends to be an implication of, well, wouldn't your, shouldn't your wife be doing that? They would never say that, of course, but uh, there's always that sort of implication. But um, one thing I wondered was whether your data was affected um, or whether the percentages changed or how it was affected in places where perhaps teaching was valued more than research um, and how much 
Is this perhaps to a certain extent an indictment on the, uh, the domination in a way of the research ideal rather than teaching or perhaps yes, thinking I, about the balance there? Right. I think that's a very good question. And in the original survey, the graduate students rated uh, four-year liberal arts colleges to be a whole lot more family-friendly. But the truth is, our survey really does cover them as well, I mean, the, the big general survey about when people drop out, et cetera. And there, there isn't that much difference between them at, the, at that stage. Um, but because we are geared at graduate students and postdocs, these are people who are probably going to go on to research universities, more likely at, at any rate. But it's a good question. And by the way, thank you for taking your daughter and just being a good role model, because I think it takes a lot of courage for men to do that. But again, once you have three men carrying around the Snuggie, then, then they all get used to it, and it becomes just ordinary. So just becoming ordinary is what, you're, <laughs> what, what we're aiming for. And employed, yes. So you're the gypsy scholar now. Yes, well, uh, I, hope, I hope. There actually is some hope for gypsy scholars, because a lot of um, good percentage is in the book do get hired out of that to a regular job. Just not necessarily in the place where you're the gypsy scholar. <laughs> Hi. Um, I was wondering if you could measure any effects based on the career of the other partner. Um, yes. There actually, there's a whole thing, I can't remember all the numbers, but they're in the book, about dual career couples. And not surprisingly, um, women are more often the, the trailing spouse um, and have more trouble than men do. However, that, having said that, there are about 38% of all couples, it's the men who are the trailing spouse. Uh, and they probably have even more trouble because it's hard for their ego not to do this. Um, there was a good, a good survey that came out of Stanford, and the numbers are just not clear in my mind at the moment. But it is a real difficulty uh, for, for women. Whether or not they have children, it's, it's a, a difficulty for women. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.